Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we continue our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. In this talk, Jordan's going to be dealing with Isaac and Esau, specifically the first few verses of Genesis chapter 27. He'll be talking about Isaac's relationship to Esau and how the people in the passage relate to rituals and sacrifices. We hope you enjoy and are sharpened by this episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. What we did last week, then, you can actually see on page 33... I mentioned that there's a structure, a bracket in this passage. You can see in A there, Esau's wives, Isaac's blessings, Esau's wives, Isaac's blessings, Esau's wives. Shows us something of the structure here. In terms of the passage, we're being shown that Esau is unworthy, that Jacob should be the one to inherit. An additional dimension of that, I think, is that Isaac was faithful in his relationship with his wife, Isaac waited until Abraham found him a good wife, and he accepted her, and when she was in trouble, he prayed for her. Back in chapter 25, she said she was barren, and Yitzhak entreated Yahweh on behalf of his wife. He takes care of her. This is quite different from Esau, and so in a sense, Esau stands in contrast with Isaac. The problem is, Isaac has become Esau in chapter 27 and has fallen away from being a good son and being a good husband. He's a good son, he's a good husband, he's a bad father. And one of the things that you'll find in commentators, and you find this in Gerhardus Voss's Biblical Theology and other many places, they'll say, well, Abraham is the idea of a strong character and Isaac is kind of a weak, mild-mannered character whose wife takes charge of things and Jacob is a deceptive kind of character as if these were character studies, as if they belonged in Plutarch's life. The Bible is not interested in character studies, it's interested in transformations. And we don't have any information here to know whether Isaac was a go-getter type of guy or a mild-mannered kind of a guy. What we do know is that he starts out his life well, but at the end of his life he falls into sin and has to be restored. The Bible is not given us personality types or character studies the way that it's often done. It's showing us people who change, who are not the same year after year after year, and can't be capsulized by one or two words. And that's something that you know, we need to understand. We naturally fall into kind of a Greek and classical Roman way of thinking that this person is this kind of a thing, and he's always that way from childhood to death and we can just characterize people. But the Bible shows us that people change. And we have to take people as they are at the moment. The people are complex, but they can come into the faith and fall right back out of the faith. They can be Christians and do terrible things and repent. They can be like Solomon, or they can be like Job. And Job and Solomon are two foils, both extremely rich, Solomon given all this stuff, and then he tries to grab hold of it and seize it and taxes the people in order to maintain even more glory for his kingdom and as a result his kingdom is cut in half. Job is willing to let it all go as a result his kingdom is doubled. 
these are stories about people who undergo changes. Solomon starts out well, winds up bad, and then his old age repents. So we don't want, I think, fall into the trap that so many of the commentaries do, trying to characterize Isaac as one of four personality types, which, I mean, I think there are basically four personality types. That's okay, but which one Isaac was, I don't know. And whether he was a malleable, mild-mannered guy, like Voss says, or something else, is immaterial. What he was, was a son who was willing to carry a cross and be sacrificed because he trusted his father's word that he would come to life again. He was that. And he was a wonderful husband who prayed for his wife and took care of her and provided water for Gentiles. And he was also a man who, when he got to be old, fell into sin. And those are things that we can say in terms of what Genesis is concerned about. Fathers, sons, husbands, daughters, wives, brothers. That's what's important. So the fact that Esau marries two wives, that they're bad women, all that contrasts with Isaac directly. And if there's anything Isaac should know about it's that, and the fact that Isaac is determined to bless Esau anyway only makes Isaac's sins that much worse. Then last time we also looked at theological structure, and it's in your notes here, some aspects of the theological structure, everything is theological, and we'll talk more about it today, but we have this kind of Garden of Eden motif here, Part of what's happened in these stories is Adam has shown the two trees, put into the garden, and then tested in terms of the two trees. So Isaac in the narrative receives Jacob and Esau, chapter 25. Then in chapter 26, they're not discussed at all, but he's put into a garden. Gerar means circle or region, garden. Then he's tested in terms of the two men. So there's an overall pattern here that is reminding us that over and over again the stories of sin in the Bible are stories of a fall. God gives people a kingdom and then they fall and tests them in terms of that kingdom. God gives David a promise in 2 Samuel 7, your son will be the Messiah and I'm giving you this house. Then he's tested in terms of that house and he falls with Bathsheba. God gives Solomon this glorious kingdom. Then he's tested in terms of that kingdom and he falls. At every point, God gives people something. He gives them a garden, and then he tests them in terms of it. And very often, the test is set up, then the gift is given, and then the test comes. So you're shown the two trees, you're put in the garden, and then you're tested with the two trees. You're shown the two sons, you're put into a garden area, and then you're tested in terms of the two sons. David is promised that he will, he will inherit everything and through his sons. Then he's put into a situation where he has to deal with his sons and he's tested in terms of it. The Bathsheba story is just the beginning of that. The real test comes when Amnon rapes Tamar and imitates his father. Okay, what's David going to do about it? How is he going to deal with his sons? He doesn't deal with it. So Absalom has to deal with it. Now what are you going to do about Absalom? Well, he doesn't deal with that. David doesn't deal with his sons. Okay, his test comes in terms of his sons and he messes it up. And the kingdom is almost lost because he doesn't deal with his son. So that's the pattern, and that's the pattern here. We're shown something, we're put into a situation of blessing, and then we're tested in terms of it. See, Isaac now has all this wealth. He's got these wells, he's got arrangements with the Gentiles, he's got a sheikdom that's a lot bigger than his father's was. Now what's he going to do with it? Is he going to give it to the devil? Adam had this garden. Is he going to give it to the devil? Is he going to hold on to it for 
a true son. Well, Isaac decides he's going to give it all to the devil. Oh, got down here from last time. The fall of Adam is rebellion of the son against the father. The fall of Isaac is a sinful act of a father against the son. He does well as son and husband. He fails as a father. Okay. Then I've got down here this whole list of things we looked at last time, the repetition of words and the numerological aspects, the sevens and the twelves in this passage. They're way too prominent to be ignored. They're just all over the place. And that's all summarized. And then we better pick up here at the bottom of 34 talking about flocks and goats and try to pull this all together this morning. That begins to be a major emphasis here. And I will just have to talk around it. There's no way to present it all in one breath. First of all, the two goat kids that Rebecca prepares represent her children. And there are a number of ways we can do this. The word say ear, hairy, it shows up in 27, 11, and 23. Esau is a hairy man, and Esau, is his brother, is hairy. That word Seir actually means goat. You could say Esau was a goaty man, and you'd be about right. The word Seir meaning goat occurs 16 times, 14 times in Leviticus 16, the day of covering, which concerns two goats. It's the day where sin is covered, and Jacob is going to be covered in the skins of this goat. If you were to look it up in concordance, you'd find Seir means goat about a hundred times in the Old Testament, and it means hairy about four times. So, these goats representing Esau and Jacob, just the word goat points to that, doesn't establish it, but it points to it. Recall when we were in Genesis 25 that the younger will serve the elder, the word younger is Seir, which is a pun for Seir, goaty or hairy. What Rebecca does is combines them, so that Jacob's food is made to taste like Esau's food. The meal that she makes is a combination of the two boys' foods. Jacob's food, which consists of flocks that are growing up around the wells that Isaac has dug, it's the domestic household management food, is made to taste like Esau's wild food. You got to spice up that gamey wild food because you want to do something to cover up that gamey taste. So it's more heavily spiced. And I've got this in the notes later on, but the two boys are combined in another way as well, in that Jacob wears Esau's clothes. So that Jacob is made to smell like Esau, just as Jacob's food is made to smell like Esau's food. So they're combined. And Rebecca does that. By combining the two, Rebecca presents both sons together in the person of Jacob, who is supposed to inherit and rule and represent the family. That's what's happening here. Jacob is Esau because he is supposed to be the governor of the family and the representative of the family. Number four, it is Rebekah and not Isaac who rules the flock well. When we move into the flock motif, the Isaac is not governing his flock. His flock only consists of two goats. Remember from last week, and we'll review this again in just a minute, Jacob's flock is going to have lots of toasting. Isaac has Two goats. Abraham had one, one ram, Isaac, and a ram substitute for him. Isaac has two goats, Jacob and Esau. He doesn't rule his flock well. Isaac's failure means that Jacob must replace him as a ruler of the flock. And then this is where I gave you the statistics last week, and here they are in your notes. In Genesis 27, verse 9, 
where Rebecca tells Jacob to get the kids of the goats, that's only the tenth mention of the word flock in Genesis. In the ensuing story, Jacob is associated with a flock 38 times. He goes to Pat and Aram and he meets Rachel as she's bringing her flocks out. And then he takes care of the flocks and his flocks multiply. 38 times down to the end of the Jacob narrative, we find the word flock. Totaling all the words for sheep, goat, he goat, ewe, lamb, flock, etc. And there's a bunch of different words in Hebrew for all these specific different things. We find 55 occurrences of words related to goats and sheep in the Jacob narrative after this. But before this in the Bible, it's relatively infrequent. And after this in Genesis, it's nowhere near as frequent. In the Joseph narrative, chapters 37 to 50, the word flock occurs only 15 times. Of course, now we have flocks, so they still have them, but it's not emphasized. Thus, Jacob's sons and daughters are clearly linked with flocks. And Jacob is the one who rules the flock well. He also has a judgment scene where he calls his sons forward and passes curses and blessings on them. And he does it right in Genesis 49. Unlike Isaac, who does it wrong here in this passage, where Isaac calls evil good and good evil. Number five in particular, goats represent the sons. Rebecca's two goat kids relate to Jacob and Esau. The skin of a goat covers Jacob, making him into an Esau. But it's also an association. Jacob's spotted and speckled goats, which he acquires under Laban's rule, relate to the sons he acquired at that time. Joseph's supposed death is signified by the blood of a goat kid in 37-31. Judah sent a kid of the goats to Tamar, which unbeknownst to him signified the children that he'd also sent to her. Chapter 38. Men, this whole idea that human beings are signified by animals underlies this bizarre statement to our ears in Genesis chapter 32, verse 33. For some reason I have 32 down here. Where after Jacob wrestles with Yahweh, it says that Yahweh touched the socket of his thigh and it was dislocated. You remember that, but then the conclusion of the story is in verse 33, the last verse of the chapter. What does your Bible say? 33 or 32 there. Last verse of chapter 32. Okay, it's the Hebrew versus English numbering. Okay. If you're looking at Fox, you've got the Hebrew numbering is verse 33. In the English Bible, it's verse 32. Therefore the children of Israel do not eat the sinew that is on the socket of the thigh until this day, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh as the sinew. Does that make any sense to us? Because the patriarch was wounded in the socket of the thigh, the muscle there, therefore we don't eat the muscle that comes off of the animal at that point. But you see, to them, the animals and human beings are mutually symbolic. They're related to each other. And so making the socket... What? Is it made unclean or is it made too holy? My guess is it's made too holy. Because God touched it, it's now the holiest part and it's too holy for men to eat. So we're not told exactly why, we're just told they didn't need it. But the correspondence is there, you see. So we're not out of line at all to suggest that these two goats relate to the two sons. It has everything to do with the passage. The relationship of a pair of goats to twin sons or to double sons, is later developed in the course of biblical narrative. I think this is about where we wound up last time. Judah's goat kid, 
head of the goats that he sends to Tamar, becomes his twin sons, Perez and Zerah, who like Jacob and Esau switch places. That's in chapter 38. Joseph, signified by a slain goat kid, also has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who also switch places. Leviticus 16, the sins of Israel are placed on two goats on the day of covering. Leviticus 16, verse 1, specifically links this ritual with the death of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. Just read that. We are going to spend a little time on this theme, because it uncovers for us what's going on in this narrative in another depth or dimension. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, and said, so forth. It's the death of the two sons of Aaron that specifically introduces the Day of Atonement law. For some reason, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, were two Esau's who were then replaced by Eleazar and Ithamar, who were two Jacob. That's linked to the two goats in Leviticus 16. This doubling points to the fact that Jacob and Esau become two communities within Israel, the righteous and the wicked. In other words, you've got Jacob and Esau. And they're individuals, one and one. Now they expand to two, which is Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and that signifies community. So here you've got the individual, sinner and the righteous. Now we have two communities, the community of the wicked and the community of the righteous within Israel, and the sacrifice of the two goats, then, is going to be for these two communities. One community has its sins taken away. The other community is cast out. And that's the meaning of the ritual. Not everybody in Israel has their sins taken away. Some, when the goat is cast out, that signifies what's going to happen to them. And so, Israel is positioned just like Jacob and Esau. You see, the Jacob-Esau story is behind the Day of Atonement ritual. Behind it in a very general kind of a way, but still behind it. And I wanted you to see that. Yeah. The righteous goat is slain and then ascends to God on the altar, while the wicked goat is sent out to destruction. So we've got two sons, two goats, two groups of people. The wicked one is sent out. I'm going to put cut off. And the righteous one ascends. Well, what happens with Jacob and Esau? Well, it looks like Jacob is the one who's being sent out and cut off, but he's actually not. He goes out into the wilderness and he meets God, and God is on a ladder to heaven, where the whole idea of going up and ascending is emphasized. And although Esau remains behind and becomes a great nation, that nation was never anything but a city of destruction, Azazel. And when we come back to this next week and go over it again in more detail, I'll remind you that what does Jacob say to Esau? He says, away from the fat of the earth is your dwelling place, away from the dew of the heavens above. So Esau is actually given this cutting off judgment where Jacob is ascended and raised on high. So, everything corresponds here, and there are actually more correspondences than this. But all I wanted to do in this introductory section is point out two goats, two sons, two goats on the Day of Atonement, the same thing is happening. 
The structure of ritual is the same as the structure of biography and history. And that's what's happening here. Now we can get into the passage itself. Enough introductions. On the bottom of page 36, here's your outline. The larger outline of the passage. The narrative flow exists as a series of panels that have a generally chiastic structure. We begin and end with Esau's evil marriages. The first thing after into the passage is that Isaac instructs Esau, then Rebekah instructs Jacob, and then Isaac is with Jacob, and Isaac is with Esau. These are the two blessings, or blessing and non-blessing. That's at the center. Then Rebekah instructs Jacob and tells him he'd better get out of town. Isaac instructs Jacob and tells him he'd better get out of town. And we end again with the notice about Esau's evil marriages and what the result is. Esau goes out and marries again. Takes the third wife. So those are the panels. The characters in these panels are arranged this way and that's generally what's happening. And at the heart of it then is the blessing to the two sons. As a matter of fact, we could add in here, I'll probably just go back and redo these, but in a sense... The actual heart of this passage is verses 30 to 33 where when Isaac has finished blessing Jacob, Jacob leaves. Esau comes in, brings the food to his father, and Isaac trembles greatly. I would say that's the crisis in the passage. In between these D sections you have the actual crisis, which is the turn of events. That's the event that happens where Isaac realizes that he has not succeeded in tricking God. He has not gotten by with anything, and all of his schemes have come to naught. In a sense, that's the center of the passage, and that's where everything changes. So now we'll begin. Chapter 26, 34, and 35. When Esau was forty years old, he took to wife Yehudit, daughter of Bari the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Alon the Hittite. And they were a bitterness of spirit to Yitzchak and Rivkah. Like his father, Esau married at forty. Isaac was forty years old when he took Rebekah. That's in 25:20. So we've got an immediate contrast between Esau and Isaac. They're both married at forty. Esau, unlike Isaac, commits the sin of bigamy. And that's a sin because you're supposed to cleave to your wife. Genesis 2.24 Never right to take a second wife. Esau, unlike Isaac, marries with the daughters of men. Abraham is very careful to send his servant away so that Isaac doesn't marry one of the daughters of the land. But Esau, unlike Isaac, marries one of the daughters of the land. D, the presence of these women made life bitter for Rebekah and Isaac. doesn't just say... They were a bitterness of spirit to Rebekah. They were a bitterness of spirit to Isaac as well. Isaac has plenty of information to know that Esau is in sin. Thus, Isaac's sin of favoring Esau has made the more pronounced as the narrative begins. Now, in terms of chronology, Esau is 40 years old when he marries. The next scene where Isaac is old and blesses the two sons, Esau is 77. So there's 37 years in between chapter 26 and 27. We got 37 years of these women causing problems. And they don't ever stop causing problems. They don't convert. They don't become believers. They don't become gentle, 
people. At the end of chapter 27, verse 46, Rebekah says to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Yaakov should take a life from the Hittite women like these, from the women of the land, why should I live? They haven't changed. Esau hasn't prevailed on them. They haven't become any kind of other person. So for 37 years, Isaac has full knowledge. This is not the family that ought to inherit the covenant. These are terrible women. Esau probably has children by this time, 37 years. Esau's children may well be grown by now. His oldest ones. What are they like? Well, they're not much. You just fill this in. We're given all the information where we can fill it in. Isaac has no business deciding to bless Esau. But that's what he decides to do in chapter 27, verses 1 to 4. Now when Yitzchak was old and his eyes had become too dim for seeing, and he called Esau his elder son, and he said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. And he said, And behold, I have grown old and do not know the day of my death. So now pray, pick up your weapon, your hanging quiver and your bow, and go into the field, and hunt me down some hunted game, and make me a delicacy such as I love, and bring it to me, and I will eat it, that I may give you my own blessing before I die. Repeat stuff that we've mentioned before. Isaac's blindness is a sign of his spiritual rebellion. As a mature man, he should have had knowledge of good and evil, because that's what mature men are supposed to have what rulers and wise men have in the Bible. It reminds you the opening of the eyes is associated with the knowledge of good and evil. Back in Genesis chapter 3, Behold, their eyes are open and they now know good and evil. That's somewhat sarcastic there, but it's also true. Isaac's blindness means he doesn't have it. doesn't have any true knowledge of good and evil. He calls it evil good and good evil. And he has forsaken mature discernment. Second of all, I want to point out that this idea of death is important in this passage. We might overlook it. It's an inclusio theme in the narrative. The story begins, Isaac says, I don't know the day of my death, let me give you my blessing before I die. That's repeated when Rebecca repeats it, using the same words in verses 7 to 10. But at the end of the chapter, we come down to the end and we're still talking about death. Esau threatens to kill Jacob once Isaac is dead. Rebecca says she doesn't want to lose both of her sons in one day. Why should I be bereaved of you? And then Rebecca says, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries a woman like this, why should I live? Now we'll have to ask ourselves what that means when we get to it. How would you read that as an American? Oh, if Jacob marries a woman like this, See, we tend to read that psychologically. Well, I'm, this is just so depressing. We have to read it theologically. This is the mother of the seed saying, if Jacob marries a wicked woman, then all of my grandchildren are lost. Was what happened before the flood? The sons of God intermarried with the daughters of men, and the world was destroyed. Only Noah and his family were left. Now, we got the same thing happening here. Esau is intermarried with the daughters of men. If Jacob does the same thing, then it's all over. And Rebecca's whole life as a mother of the seed is worthless. God will have to start with someone else. So when she says, I'd like to die if Jacob does this, it's not just psychological depression. It has everything to do with redemptive history. At any rate, death 
begins and ends this passage, and the passage has something to do with death, and as we'll see, it has a whole lot to do with sacrifice because, as I mentioned to you last time, this entire chapter replicates the rite of a sacrifice. Also, verses 2 to 4 use death as an inclusio. Isaac is to die soon. Esau is to make a meal. Isaac is to die soon. As a matter of fact, Isaac's got about 30 or 40 more years to go. He doesn't know that, though. We don't know what those years were like. If he got his eyesight back, (laughs) or if he was blind all those years. Not a happy resolution. D. Esau's weapons are his quiver and bow. Jacob's weapon is his mother. That's worth thinking about, too. Esau has one set of weapons. Jacob has another set of weapons. And it's his mother's actions, it's his mother's prayers that will make him triumph over Esau, who has the carnal weapons. I think that we've seen that in our generation. Somebody a while back said to Rich Bledsoe, you all remember Rich, he's been here before, probably be here again, he'll be here this summer, said, well, God gave us Ronald Reagan because of all of our prayers. Rich said, no, God gave... Ronald Reagan because of the prayers of all the grandmothers in Russia. (laughs) Because Reagan didn't save America, but he defeated Russian communism. And I don't think it was an answer to any Christian prayers that we got Reagan. Probably in America, probably whatever Reagan accomplished, it was in answer to prayers of people over there. Well, mother's prayers are more powerful than nuclear bombs. And in part, this passage points to that. That is a contrast. E. Isaac loves this delicacy. He says, make me this delicacy which I love. And this loving is repeated three times in verses 4, 9, and 14. Or it's mentioned three times. Said once and repeated twice. Signifying his choice of the wrong food for the wrong tree and his idolatry. His soul cleaves to this. This is what he really wants. He loves it. He wants to be one flesh with it by eating it. And that is this bonding idea. Isaac is bonded to Esau. Isaac has become Esau. And everything wrong with Esau, Isaac has eaten into himself and he has become Esau. And remember we've said Jacob has to replace Esau, but in a much more important way, Jacob has to replace Isaac. Isaac's sins and failures mean that Jacob has to become a new Isaac who will deal with his sons the right way, who will manage his flock the right way. And the fact that Isaac becomes Esau in this passage and is linked with him is part of what sets that up. Jacob has to replace this whole fallen estate. The word delicacy occurs six times here and only twice elsewhere. This is important to understand. We have this word, make me a delicacy such as I love, and it keeps coming up. Make me a delicacy. Esau made him a delicacy. His mother said, your father wants a delicacy. So then she made him a delicacy. Well, you wouldn't know this unless I tell you or commentator tells you. This word only occurs two more times in the entire Bible. And we need to look at what they are. Because... The other two times it shows up probably are building up from this and shed light back on it for us. In Proverbs 23, verse 3, it's Seth. 
When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully who is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you're a man of appetite. Do not desire his delicacies because it is deceptive food. And then in verse 6, do not eat the bread of a selfish man or a man of evil eye, or desire his delicacies, or as he thinks within his soul, so he is. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsel you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Okay, let's reflect on these two statements. When you sit down to dine with the ruler, don't desire his delicacies because it's deceptive food. Esau's delicacies are deceptive food. Esau is Satan. And Satan comes in the Garden of Eden and he deceives them. He deceives Eve, not Adam. Adam was not deceived. He deceives Eve into eating deceptive food. It's a delicacy. It's good to the eyes. It's a delight. It has nice presentation here on the plate. It's a delight to the eyes. Good for food and desirable to make you wise. And we're warned, be careful about that. We can take this in a simple sense. Out with somebody important, don't sit there and wolf the food. Don't eat a bunch of his food because you're taking a gift from him and then he's going to want something back. Simple, ordinary wisdom. But in terms of the Bible, these things always have theological depth. And the theological depth goes back to the garden where Satan sets these delicacies out and it's a deception. Isaac's delicacies are a deception and over the years they have seduced excuse me, Esau's delicacies. Esau's delicacies that he makes. He's a chef. They have seduced Isaac into sin. Isaac has been deceived. And now, he's going to be deceived in the second way. Because of his lust for the delicacies, his wife is able to deceive him into doing what's right. Esau seduces him into doing what's wrong with his delicacies, preying on his father's tummy lust. Rebekah is able to deceive him with delicacies again. So when Solomon, and are these one of the Proverbs of Solomon? Are we still in the Solomon section here? Yeah. When Solomon gives this information, surely part of what's in the back of his mind using this word delicacy, which has never occurred anywhere else in the Bible except in this one story here, where it occurs six times, he's pulling this up, saying, hey, don't forget stupid old dumb blind Isaac and how he was seduced by delicacies. It's dangerous. Be careful. You ought not to eat anything plain old hot dog. Chinese food, Indian food, all these delicacies are wicked and evil and deceptive. No, that's not what he's talking about, you see. What he's saying is, don't lust for food and become a connoisseur. And then the second proverb about the same thing, don't eat the bread of a self-centered man or desire his delicacies because... He says to eat and drink, but his heart is not with you, and you will vomit up what you have eaten and waste your compliments. In other words, it'll go sour in your stomach. You'll be sorry that you got involved in this later on. Well, here again. Esau is the selfish man. He says eat and drink, but is his heart really with his father? I don't think so. And his father will regret having become involved with him. So the fact that this word in the providence of God, as God is the author of this text, this word delicacy occurs six times here and only in those two Proverbs, very strongly related. This is the food of seduction and deception. We're right back conceptually 
to Satan seducing Eve, Esau seducing Isaac with food. Now let's just summarize Isaac's spiritual position at this time. There's ten things we can say before we move to the next paragraph and introduce it. One, Esau's marriages show that Esau is unworthy, but Isaac ignores that. Number two, Isaac's blindness is a symbol of as well as a judgment on his sin. Number three, he seeks to pass on the blessing secretly. Some of the commentators point to this, and I think they're right. You look at Jacob in Genesis 49. Jacob calls all of his family together, and he gives curses and blessings to his son. Reuben, you're unstable as water. I'm not going to give you anything. Simeon and Levi, oh, your weapons are violent. You're not going to inherit. Judah, you repented. Judah, you will be the leader. The king will come from you, and so forth. And he characterizes and he blesses each one of them with respect to the future. But he gets them all together. But look what Isaac does. This is obviously a secret thing. Part of the reason we know it's a secret is that Rebecca just turns out to have happened to have been there. I don't think Rebecca was by the door day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for 30 years waiting to hear what might happen. She just happens to come by and overhears, because this is a tent, you know, and sound travels a little bit. She overhears this happening. This is all being done in secret. Well, he's not going to call Jacob in and say, Jacob, I don't like you, so I'm going to curse you. He could never bring himself to do that. He just wants to sneak around and bless Esau. And he's so present-oriented, he doesn't think to himself, well, why don't I just also bring Jacob in and put a curse on him? I couldn't possibly get by with that. Any more than he could get by with actually doing this God's way. Remember I pointed out to you last time what we could read here. Isaac was old, his eyes had become too dim for seeing, and he called his sons and his wife and his servants and said, Let us go to the mountain and let us build an altar to Jehovah. Let us prepare the delicacies and the food that Jehovah likes. And let us offer sacrifice to him as a sweet savor so that he smells it. Isaac is the one who's going to want to do the smelling here. So that he smells it. And after he has done that, I will give you Yahweh's blessing to my sons. Because it's Yahweh's blessing. But that's not what he does. He makes himself God. He says, bring a sacrifice to me. Bring food to me so I can smell it. You offer it to me. It's my blessing and I will give you my blessing. And of course, since there's no way on earth he could do that in public, he does it secretly. And so there's a contrast there. Another indication of Isaac's spiritual condition. Number four, Isaac knows he's disobeying God, which is why he trembles when he's caught out. He's sneaking around because he knows what he's doing is wrong. Isaac acts deceitfully, and eye for eye he is punished by deception. I think that's an important point. The deceptions in the Bible are always eye for eye. Ultimately, it's because the serpent deceived Eve, that the women do the deceiving. But right here in this passage, Isaac intends to deceive everybody, and he's trying to trick God, so God tricks him right back. And that, I think, has got to be borne in mind when you consider what Rebecca does. Number six, he regards the blessing as his own to give as he wishes, stealing from God. If you look at page 39 on the next page, I'll show you, you can see this. We'll get to it next week. But there's a threefold repetition of this plan in the passage. And right in the middle of the page, you'll see verses three and four, it says, go and bring some hunting game. I'll make a delicacy. I'll give my blessing when Rebecca recounts it, she says, Your father said, Bring some honey game, make a delicacy, I'll eat. Give Yahweh's blessing. And when she says it again, it just says, Give blessing. So the contrast there is to point to us 
that Isaac is thinking of this as something that he possesses. And it's his to decide who it goes to. And God has already said who it's to go to. Because it's God's blessing. Number seven, Isaac does not show concern about his son's well-being. Unlike Abraham in Genesis 24, we've already mentioned that. Abraham is very conscientious and careful to make sure Isaac marries a good girl and is set up the right way. Isaac is not thinking in terms of that at all. And the fact that Esau has married these bad women and so forth shows that. Number eight, Isaac's God is his belly and it's Esau's food he loves. He has become Esau. Thus, Jacob as Esau's replacement also becomes Isaac's replacement. Just in terms of Isaac's spiritual position, though, his God is his belly. And that's what's happened to him. Isaac intends to steal even the smaller portion he might have reserved for Jacob. And that's an important thing here. Esau says, don't you have any blessing left? And he says, no, I gave it all to him. Not just a double portion. I gave it all to him. It turns out that Esau receives nothing. Whatever nothing is. Actually, I'm sure he's going to receive stuff, but officially, in terms of the blessing, he doesn't get anything. And as I mentioned to you last time, it's the sense in which Jacob makes it up to Esau, acting as a true Isaac. Jacob goes to a strange land, earns all this stuff, and gives a whole lot of it to Esau. It's as if Jacob is making restitution for Isaac's sin. As Isaac steals, what he should have done was give a double portion to Jacob and a single portion to Esau. From what we can tell, that's what the law requires later on, and this passage seems to indicate something like this was supposed to happen. And even at this stage in history, we can't be dogmatic, but it seems that something like that was supposed to happen. Jacob should have received the sheikdom, but Esau should have received a lot of gifts. That's what should have happened. Jacob, as a result of what he does, Esau doesn't receive anything. And so, Isaac has stolen from Esau. Jacob makes restitution to him. But that's another of Isaac's sins. And his blindness, he's not thinking clearly at all. In summary, well, I already mentioned this. Isaac's not a weak character, as if this was some kind of character study. Rather, he's a godly son and a godly husband who feels to be a godly father. And Jacob has to replace him in that regard. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.